Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thank you for tuning in again. I am Vic. I'm here with William. Howdy. And this is another installment of Straight Talk, so we're here with Dr. Mike Hunziker. Great to see you. Thanks so much for having me again, and it's nice to actually do it here in, in your studio. In the building, yeah. So that was the big reveal. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, folks. Talk to you next week. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so uh, we are um, back here in actual studio, not over Teams. So this is really great. Um, this God, this might be the first time that we've hung out face-to-face since... Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. I think when I started... Uh, when I just had retired, I was yep. getting ready to start at AU, and you were actually teaching in person. I think it was 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a hot minute. Went and had a beer, so, uh, which we need to catch up on that, too, but I digress. <laughs> I will, uh, thanks, folks. Yeah, like, again, another installment of Straight Talk. Um, we're going to dive into some of the stuff going on in the Taiwan Strait, First Island Chain stuff, Forest Design 2030. Um, I guess just a quick recap. Last time we talked, it was you said it was over New Year's. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're the Chinese New Year's, yeah. so early early January. Yeah, yep. and uh, the we didn't we didn't have balloon issues nope, yet. We were pre balloon. We were pre Ty McCarthy. So yeah. much has transpired. Yeah, I think Pelosi by the day. was Pelosi the big was that the hot button topic or is that a previous? No, I feel like we talked about Pelosi after sometime in the early fall okay. of twenty two, and yeah. then January. I think we were talking security cooperation, and then balloon, and then Cy McCarthy. And yeah, so luckily uh, between uh, U.S. Um, policy and uh, what looks to be ccp expansionism we have plenty of content um so this is a, definitely a reoccurring yeah segment. so let's uh kick it off yeah. like tell it to me straight um what's the deal with this balloon what uh you know it seems like to be uh looking on the news it was a political football cooked around it definitely made um inflatable know, football yeah an inflatable <laughs> football floating around forty, fifty thousand feet <laughs> but uh, so, so i guess what was its purpose what did it do what were the uh, greater consequences of it and how does it influence uh, our relationship with china and also uh, concerning taiwan as well sure well i mean its purpose seems somewhat clear which was to collect intelligence on the united states uh you know i think there is some question as to the marginal benefit operationally in terms of what they could collect with a balloon that they couldn't already collect with their space assets or with the people they've already got on the ground. I suppose there's some argument about loitering time and the amount of intel. And, and in fact, I, I'm reading in the news that, right, there may be that the U.S. government has analyzed and assessed what maybe they had been able to capture in terms of using some of the apparatus that they have on those balloons and whether or not that is going to be revealed to the public because, as people are probably reading as of the recording of this conversation, uh, the Biden administration and Beijing are beginning to kind of try to feel out some more high-level talks, so kind of a, a momentary thawing in relation, which I think actually speaks to the real problem of the balloon, which was that it came at a really bad, really volatile time in the U.S.-China relationship where both sides were beginning to start to have some high-level conversations, and that just scuttled any possibility of it. And I think it inflamed passions, in particular on the Hill, but also because I think this was a real visceral wake-up call for the American people who for many days watched this thing just hover its way across the continental U.S., and I don't think it's surprising that the average American who may not have been tuned in to how tense things got uh, really had a very dim view of the Chinese doing this. Yeah, I could, <laughs> I could just imagine that when they sent it up for whatever their reasoning is, that as, like you said, sort of relations started to thaw, somebody in the back was like, hey, what about that fucking balloon, man? Like, I think it's cool. We're going to be okay. And then all of a sudden it just shows up or like – well, Damn the wind. That's always the problem, right, is you can't tell, is this part of some overarching master plan, or is this just another bureaucratic F-up, and it's very difficult to have evidence, and it's like a Rorschach test, and you can look at the same thing and come to two different conclusions. And I think what really challenges this relationship on both sides is the fact that each side assumes the other is operating according to some diabolical master plan, but both sides looking in-house realize, you know, sometimes just one hand's doing something, didn't bother telling the other hand. Yeah. It would not surprise me that the Chinese military's floating this balloon, lost control of it, didn't bother telling Beijing and the political authorities who at that very moment were waiting to greet our Secretary of State. <laughs> so these these things happen, but you also can't rule out the possibility, yeah, this was all Yeah, or just sort move. of a, just something for else for us to consider, even if it's not a real deal just adding more monkey wrenches into the 
Now, is this like part of like uh, China's regular playbook? To has this happened before and it just gets swept under the rug, and this just happened just because of the tense relationships between the United States and China to build the surface, or is was this a one-off event? Well, I mean. First things first, I definitely do not claim to be a China expert, but it does strike me as an amateur watching from the sidelines, trying to mostly just understand our partner in Taiwan. Uh, this is definitely part of the Chinese playbook, which is to say these gray zone provocations, see what you can get away with and just suck up as much information as you can from all the assets that you can. So in that regard, it definitely isn't surprising, which is why I don't think we can rule out that this was a very deliberate move, or maybe it was a deliberate move in the way that, you know, had a couple too many beers and you're driving down the road. You you, you know you're playing with fire. Yeah. And so if you get, you know, uh, the, you crash the drunk call to yeah. the X. You crash your car into the tree. It was not an accident per se. It was certainly yeah. a foreseeable at most negligent accident. I think, the yeah. quote unquote, best case scenarios, we saw something like that. They were doing something that probably they knew we would be pretty pissed off if we saw and it got out of hand. But I also don't think we can completely rule out the alternative explanation, which is the whole thing was deliberate. Yeah. Well, I think. Um, I mean, it definitely, when we, I guess we start to, like you said, like, I guess looking at the holistic package, and I know we're, you know, we're trying to focus here on the straight, but I think it's worthwhile to sort of try to unpack behaviors mm -hmm. um, and overarching themes because none of these things are isolated within regions. I mean, conversely, um, you know, we, if we look at uh, sort of China's, uh, I don't know if it's okay to call it like, like predatory loaning mm -hmm. and how they are just hamstringing a lot of these uh developing nations to just um absolutely debilitating um interest rates mm -hmm. uh you know creating a, a a real uh worldwide crisis um countries that were emerging out of debt are now so steeped in it that they are going to be at the uh you know under the puppet strings of china for their remainder of their existence what it looks like yeah i know the belt and road initiative i yeah. mean this is a very complicated challenge obviously these are you know we are two hegemonic powers um both of which have very large economies very powerful military organizations and we all have interests obviously in our quote-unquote spheres of influence but uh you know globally uh, in, in china and i think almost any interpretation wants to challenge kind of the status quo distribution of kind of power and capabilities around the world it makes for a very complex situation, and I think that is one of the concerning things as we look to the Taiwan Strait is it is very multifaceted. Things that happen in other parts of the world definitely have knockdown effects for what's happening for Taiwan. And I suppose one of the things that concerns me as an academic watching from the sidelines is with the increasing speed with which these crises seem to occur and the complexity, you know, solving one problem may just create others either down the road or in some other part of the world. It's just kind of the level of confidence which we're hearing in some circles in D.C. Like, this is the solution, this is the problem, and if only it were so clear-cut. But there is, I think, a risk in kind of charging forward with the conviction that you've got the right answer in a moment where I think things are very, very confusing and maybe a little bit of caution and throttling back on the rhetoric would be would be useful. Well, uh, can to provide our audience some uh, context, so the balloon thing happened. What other, I guess, fallen dominoes have occurred between since then and now that you said uh, contributed to this ratcheting up of, of tensions and, and forcing uh, our less calmer heads to be more boisterous. Sure. Well, I mean, so I think one of the many things have transpired since the balloon event um, and certainly Chinese provocations in the so-called gray zone have just been kind of constantly ratcheting up in the background. Uh, but kind of a big watershed moment between the balloon and where we are right now today is, of course, the McCarthy Tsai visit um, initially. Speaker of the House McCarthy says he's going to go to Taiwan, kind of close on the heels of the Pelosi visit. I think there's a clear recognition across kind of the bipartisan spectrum in Washington that for the most part, Taiwanese voters did not react kindly to the Pelosi visit that did not make them feel more secure, especially in the wake of kind of the Chinese response and the military air quotes here, you can't see, uh, <laughs> exercises. And so the decision was made, rather than McCarthy going to Taiwan to meet with President Tsai, that President Tsai, en route to her visit to, to South America, is going to have a stopover in California, meet with McCarthy. And even then, that basic conversation then happens behind closed doors. There's, of course, kind of a quick uh, joint statement to make this as non-provocative as, as possible. And even then, of course, China overreacts to this and has another series of very provocative exercises, blockade exercises. And I think, interestingly enough, also, as part of that exercise, had a plan to interdict uh, 
commercial shipping and nothing really came of it but again it kind of suggests some of the tools that china can have to continue to to ratchet pressure mm -hmm. on taiwan and then as we're talking about pressure on taiwan i mean let's just get into taiwan proper um they've got a, a upcoming election i know you've yes. spoken favorably of president Tsai and some of her vision for defense her vision for deterrence um she has to go her term limits are up mm -hmm. uh and now from what i understand there are three potential or like legitimate candidates yep so we are oh shit math for marines quick uh, reverse engineer the, the election is in january so you know right now it is uh, basically may you can do the math yourself how many <laughs> months away this thing is coming um the Two major parties, and then there is a third party, kind of a relatively new party, have all revealed their candidates. Uh, none of the three parties had a traditional primary. In essence, the, the power brokers inside each party made the determination for who the candidates would be. Uh, so the DPP, which is President Tsai's party, their candidate will be their current vice president, William Lai or Lai Ching-te, um, running up against him. And I think this just came out last week. The KMT had sort of an internal competition, and it... Well, it doesn't look like the KMT's announced that uh, Ho Yo-e is going to be their candidate. He is currently the mayor of New Taipei City, which is kind of if Taipei we normally talk of as this monolithic entity, but politically Taipei, the city center, and then there's New Taipei City, which is actually the largest municipality in Taiwan. It's kind of this big donut of uh, population and urban sprawl around it. And then we have the TPP, which is the Taiwan People's Party. It's a almost brand new party. I think it was like 2019 when it was formed. And the person who formed it and remains its chairman, his name is Ko Wenzhe. He was a former mayor of Taipei, not Taipei City, but Taipei itself. Um, and he's a physician. He's kind of a very popular, charismatic figure. And so he's trying to sort of stake out a middle path between the KMT and the DPP. So those are the three major candidates running from the three major parties. And current polling looks like about, give or take, 30% who are favoring William Lai, about 30% who seem to be right now, still a long time to go, uh, Ho Yo-e, and about 20% or so who favor Ko from the TPP. It's probably also worth pointing out that it looks like Ko is really drawing away from the KMT, and kind of some of the polling suggests that, like, if Ko were to drop out, then those votes would probably move over to, to Ho. Oh, okay. And then how does, where do they line up? So I would imagine that DPP is going to stay with sort of the current vision being that their president the the president of, of taiwan is from their party right that there's not going to be a huge detraction if they elect re-elect within the party but then the kmt um do i understand that traditionally they were more pro uni unification yeah, and I think it's actually, I'm glad you pointed this out because it is still part of the standard narrative in D.C. that, in essence, a very simplified view is the DPP is pro-independence and the KMT is pro-unification. And that's just, that's not really where either party is right now. I, for sure, you can find extremists in both parties, extreme versions of what you might call uh, deep green on the DPP side or, you know, independence now at any cost. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can find some very, very pro-unification now at any cost uh, or at any price on the deep blue KMT side. But I think the mainstream view in both parties when it comes to cross-strait relations is a preference for the status quo and finding a way forward which will ensure peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Both parties, though, have a very, I wouldn't say very, but different approaches to how right. they want to achieve that outcome, um, which reflects the will of the people. Something like 60, 70% of the Taiwanese people prefer the status quo. They want to find a way to make this thing work uh, uh, for the indefinite future. Um, I think the DPP is going to position itself as being the best manager of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and understanding that Taiwanese security will ultimately be underwritten by the United States, whereas I think the KMT is trying to show that it's going to be the uh, best manager of the cross-strait relationship, basically balancing between China and the fact that China's not going anywhere and the United States. Um, and so kind of which of those two messages appeal most to the Taiwanese voters will will be determined. It's also worth pointing out that because Vice President Lai is an incumbent in essence, um, I think you're right, his policies will largely follow on from President Tsai's policies. His team will largely probably be drawn from President Tsai's existing team. On the other side though, Ho, he's relatively new to politics. He was a career police officer and 
he is a relative blank slate when it comes to foreign policy and defense policy. And so he's really only made a few public statements uh, as to what that platform is going to look like. And so I think it, it remains to be seen kind of the explicit details for how they're going to handle cross-strait relations and defense policy. Based on your understanding of uh, Taiwanese uh, politics, to what extent is uh, relationship with China and the United States like a forefront issue? Is it like a high priority issue for most voters or is it somewhere in the middle or is it low priority? Like where, where does it stand? I mean, I would say it is a in a national election like the one that's coming up in January, it is a high priority for voters. It is very salient. Um, that said, it is worth just keeping in mind, just like here in elections in the United States, you know, domestic issues, economic issues, social issues, those still tend to weigh very heavily in voters' minds. And it's easy from kind of the military perspective just to fixate on the foreign policy piece. But we can't ignore these other issues. And from that perspective, I mean, the DPP faces some headwinds. There are some economic challenges that it's facing. You know, the same sorts of economic contraction and decrease in trade and decoupling are affecting the Taiwanese economy. They're affecting the U.S. economy. Inflation is a problem. Younger people in Taiwan, just like younger people in the U.S., are struggling to find meaningful employment that pays well. Housing prices have skyrocketed and priced many younger families out of the market. And there are some demographic challenges. And so if you've been in power for the last eight years, you kind of have to own that. And it's relatively easier, I think, for voters to kind of imagine the, the blank slate because the opposition can just criticize without necessarily having to have a record that it defends itself. So, And like we talked about in a previous iteration, um, that there's sort of, uh, I guess, an ambivalence or a, or a callousing to some of the saber rattling. So I, I wondered then, does that pl also factor in? So when, regardless of where a politician may fall out on the how you're going to deal with the cross-strait relations, um, I guess maybe maybe this more supports your point is is that you can provide all of the rhetoric and data and everything, but is it at the end of the day, are people really – sort of fact-checking you on these things? Are they really going to hold your feet to the fire on your cross-strait relations, or are they more just focused on the domestic issues because we just know that regardless of what we do, China's going to saber-rattle, and we're just kind of – it doesn't really affect our day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I mean, I really wouldn't feel confident like looking into the mind of the median voter, let alone individual voters, because everybody's going to have sort of that basket of things that they worry about most. I think it is a very apt point that Chinese saber rattling has been going on for so long that some ways it's kind of become background noise. Right. Uh, I think we talked last time I was in Taipei kind of right during a bunch of the naval exercises yep. that were occurring in the, in the wake of President Tsai, who made the announcement about extending conscription. Um, and, you know, if you're walking around the street, you just this stuff's happening really far out at sea. It, you read about it in the news, but otherwise it has no impact on your life. That said, I do think there is a sense of, you know, recognition that tensions are rising, that the situation might be changing. I do believe that Ukraine came as a real wake-up call for people in Taiwan. And whether that has manifested itself in a kind of a real willingness to, you know, to, to, to sacrifice in terms of, like, conscription and paying for more for defense, that remains to be seen. But I do think I, a recent poll, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I would say a majority are concerned about the cross-strait relationship, and they are worried that China might try to do something which we haven't yet seen it do. Um, and so from that perspective, I think this will be a very salient issue in a way that maybe it wasn't in 2020 or, or 2016. And that's not to say it wasn't an issue at all in those right. years, but even more so. I guess looking at – speaking of 2020, and we just sort of – you know, we're coming up almost, you know – uh, or a third of the way through the 2020s. Um, I wonder, uh, I guess, sort of interlocking these two concepts, you know, domestic issues within Taiwan and then domestic issues within China, uh, and then just looking at sort of China, the CCP playbook, do you anticipate, and, and is this, and if the answer is yes, is it being felt in Taiwan, but is this a time where we should be concerned because things – Timelines seem to be increasing based off of a, an anticipation or an anxiety about um, issues going on in China sort of becoming a forcing function on doing doing whatever it takes to to get uh, to reunify um, what China sees as their sovereign territory. I mean, with inflation, domestic issues, uh, uh, Xi's last. Like it's you know his third term, right? Mm -hmm. So he's got to make something happen now. He's got to 
start coming good on the rhetoric or he's going to whatever happens to despots. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you, you, you see what I'm saying? So, like, are we starting to see some forcing functions here that could maybe the anxiety is 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 not just saber rattling anymore? Yeah, so it's a terrific question. I do want to make a placeholder, though, because yeah. we're focused very heavily, I think, on Taiwanese domestic politics and Chinese domestic politics and factors. We shouldn't, though, forget U.S. domestic politics yeah, and factors. Okay. And I think that's – we should not downplay the role that we have in terms of kind of ratcheting tensions in a way in which I think objectively maybe there's a, a way to muddle forward that, that doesn't necessarily push us all to the precipice. And we should play an active role in taking responsibility for that. But to the question on China – for sure, part of the narrative, I think that's very steadily coming out of D.C., which is, you know, the Davidson window, 2027, and that China f sees all of these pressures, this demographic cliff, the economic challenges, especially with Americans' emphasis on decoupling and industrial policy, so on and so forth. Uh, one way of looking at that is that she is now saying, oh, my gosh, if I'm going to solve this problem, because the third term probably isn't his last term, if he's of sound mind and healthy, we'll probably go for a fourth term in however long you know, mm -hmm. he remains on this mortal coil, which means <laughs> if he wants to vie for a fourth term, the real challenge for him is to show some sort of progress. And, of course, those timelines push us right around that Davidson window. Um, but another way of looking at it is if you look and you see that you have near-term economic and demographic challenges you're gonna have to navigate, but you fundamentally believe that the tectonic forces underneath it all are still working in your favor, then actually to try to solve the Taiwan issue by force of arms is like committing suicide for fear of death. And rather what you're gonna do is say, all right, right now I'm gonna focus inward on these near-term challenges. The Taiwan problem's not gonna go away, but it's also not gonna become insoluble and with time, China will, if it, you know, if this is Xi's perspective and who knows what it is, but if his perspective is that ultimately China is still on the rise and the United States is still on the decline, then it pays to be patient. And so I think we need to sort of give credence to this potential alternative way of looking at things. And again, I am not a China expert. When I talk to smart people I trust on China, though, I get the sense from them that that latter scenario that actually in the long run, the window is opening for China and actually the window is closing on the United States. And so if China can just find a way to continue to turn the screws economically, diplomatically and in the gray zone on Taiwan, create the sense of foreboding that in essence, Taiwan is going to be like this piece of ripened fruit that ultimately just drop from the tree mm -hmm. into their basket. And so if you think that if that's your worldview, why why would you roll the, the dice on war just given all of the risks and consequences? Sure, sure. That's interesting. I, I wonder then... Um, I mean, let's just say that were to happen. Let's just say that all of this sort of gray zone, uh, all these gray zone operations truly do move the needle on Taiwan towards a peaceful reunification or at least some semblance of that. What does that do, do you think, for all of our positioning and policy and defense um initiatives that then all of a sudden like i guess we don't need to be in the first island chain anymore well but no but i mean i think you raise a really important point and it it also speaks to the challenge right now of kind of the heated rhetoric that is giving us these very simple solutions to what's a wildly complicated long-standing problem and so you know i i really am trying to kind of invoke my inner richard bush you know former chairman of uh, american institute of taiwan he and bonnie glazer and richard haas i thought wrote a very recent book with brookings i mean just came out in the last couple of weeks in which they're trying to suggest that, listen, you know, everyone should be paying attention to this problem set, but as we are recommending solutions, we should understand what longstanding U.S. policy and the cross-strait relationship has been rather than kind of uh, imagining what we would want it to be or what we think it is. And I think it's important to remember that uh, our overarching objective in the region is peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Um, we, as a matter of policy, we acknowledge China's claim to Taiwan. We don't agree or say that that is, that is indeed the case. But we are also clear that Taiwan and China need to seek a resolution themselves. That resolution should be reached peacefully, and it should be reached with the assent of the Taiwanese people. And as a democracy, that means they should all have a say in it. But we very much, as a matter of longstanding policy, because this is, this is the release valve for the tension, um, we very much acknowledge that unification is a potential possibility. Certainly, I know, I think all things equal, that would make things challenging for Washington, given some of these other alliance management issues. Um, but the moment... We basically say U.S. policy is just unification must be completely off the table, not five years, not 10 years, not 100 years from now. Well, then we've changed that whole window mm -hmm. of opportunity dynamic in a very profound way. And then what we're telling she is regardless of what you see the tectonic forces being, we're slamming the window shut. We're coming no matter what because to us, it's a, just a, it is a red line. We cannot let 
Taiwan not just fall under your aegis, like decide to go under your aegis. And I think that changes their calculus in a really problematic way, in which case we do need to be worried about imminent action. Yeah. Gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess going into then, um, you know, what we were looking at as far as, um, I guess, going back into then the Taiwan domestic politics issue, if we're looking at the DT, D, DDPs, um, sort of what we were talking, so President Tsai was sort of pro-deterrent, um, mm -hmm. um, not, wasn't, wasn't completely sold to hey we need all this really like shiny expensive stuff we should really be looking more at, i guess to the ukraine model that like let's get more bang for our buck let's get more you know lev more um mileage out of these dollars and actually look at having a stronger sort of low-tech highly mobile force mm -hmm. that can prolong a fight rather than having a bunch of really shiny cool stuff that might not last the first 48 hours of a conflict. Um, when you start looking then at the military leadership who doesn't leave on election mm -hmm. day, what are sort of their, uh, what are they seeing in this, in this upcoming election, do you think? So I guess I would, I would amend your summary of the situation just ever so slightly because I'm an academic and that's what I do. <laughs> uh, I, I would say I think it is true that the DPP and President Tsai, and I think this will extend over to, to Vice President Lai if he is elected by the Taiwanese people, uh, that they see it is important for Taiwan to invest in its uh, defenses. Um, I also think it is accurate to say that President Tsai is open to this idea that an asymmetric force posture, a denial base, whatever buzzword we want to use, uh, is a more appropriate posture. And indeed, <clears throat> kind of one of their their, their their buzz phrase, their bumper sticker phrases, uh, has been resist China to protect Taiwan. So kind of this, we really have to galvanize the, uh, the, the Taiwanese people around this. I think that is one of the reasons for them, uh, this close relationship with the United States is very important, and they have to be able to show the Taiwanese voters this isn't a fool's errand. Therefore, if we do these things, we make these sacrifices and these changes, the U.S. will... will more reliably be there. Uh, what I guess I would add to that, though, is a recognition that asymmetry and denial is the right way to go is different than expending serious amounts of political capital mm. to force change on a military bureaucracy, which has been highly, highly resistant to this posture. And again, I want to give credit where credit's due. President Tsai's decision to extend conscription, which he made in December, I think took many observers by surprise because it kind of seemed that the electoral costs and risks because conscription is going to fall heavily on young people and young people tend to vote for the dpp i mean that was a risky strategy that was a costly strategy uh, so from that perspective you know i think she has been making some important changes on the flip side though you know just last week ministry of national defense you know commissioned the yushan which is in essence a slightly smaller lpd of mm -hmm. kind of the san antonio class right. so they are still clearly investing in very symmetric platforms if you look at the list of things they're still asking for there's still a lot of very symmetric capabilities and we have yet to see the Ministry of National Defense unveil some sort of replacement, kind of force design 2030 equivalent for the Taiwanese military. And I think we've talked in the past about former Chief of the General Staff, Admiral Li Shimin's overall defense concept. You know, this gets scrapped, but we haven't seen any sort of a replacement, symmetric or otherwise, some sort of a coherent blueprint by which the operating forces can begin to train, equip, right. and, and so on and so forth. So I think some movement has been made in that direction, but a lot remains to be done. And one of the big questions, I think, for those of us who observe Taiwanese defense policy is if Lai is, in essence, going to inherit President Tsai's bench of defense experts, and that bench has yet to really put the screws on the Ministry of National Defense, are we going to kind of see high levels of rhetorical support, but maybe moderate to low levels of actual implementation? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess, yeah, does the military bureaucracy just see it, see this as the changing of the figureheads? I, 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 think, that, I think that is very plausible. Uh, from those I've been talking to, and I, I'm heading back first to Tokyo and then to Taipei in about two weeks here to ask these questions if I think people who are, are very close to the problem set. But what I'm hearing is the Ministry of National Defense and the, the, the senior uniform general officers and flag officers are, are resisting as they always have. And where they must make concessions, they will make them, but they will be somewhat facile. They'll do the minimum, put on the dog and pony show, but in essence, continue business as usual. I am 
relatively confident, as confident as I am of anything, which isn't very confident at all, that, I mean, the KMT, one of their talking points will be, we will be better at managing the Ministry of National Defense, you know, whether that's actually true or whether right. the, because I think it's also worth pointing out, I do believe we will see a converging consensus, even with the KMT, in terms of the importance of investing in defense. I do not see Ho and his team trouting out, or trotting out some sort of, a, we spend less on defense. I think they will continue to emphasize the importance of defense, the importance of deterrence, uh, where that proportion of symmetric versus asymmetric capabilities will be. Again, they haven't released their white paper. And when I talk to folks, you know, I'm kind of getting some hand-waving. So it will be interesting to see exactly what that proportion looks like and how that might compare but again, when it comes to electoral politics, that is so into the weeds for yeah. Taiwanese voters. I don't know if we'll see this fleshed out till after the election. And, and we have a hand in influencing that as well, right? Because we have sort of just been giving them stuff without really any sort of return or at least no accountability on the return on investment, right? I, I think as a longstanding historical matter, we especially when we didn't really worry about the probability of this thing potentially going hot. That's what we were doing across multiple administrations in both parties. I have to, again, give credit where credit's due. I actually think the Biden administration has done a fairly effective job of really, especially behind the scenes, putting pressure on Taipei, saying, listen, we're not just going to sell you anything you want. And in fact, we have seen a almost complete stop of the sale of symmetric things. Uh, early in the Biden administration, there was that announcement of the sale of the 109 Paladins, mm -hmm. which many of us criticized because that is there's just no role for that in an asymmetric <laughs> defense. And kind of quietly behind the scenes, that all got turned off. And just recently, it was announced that instead, the United States will be selling Taiwan and a bunch more HIMARS. And so again, you know, these, I, I think a lot of pressure has been put, a lot of it's behind the scenes, you know, for obvious reasons of, of partner management and, and allowing both sides to save face. And so actually, I, I have seen a real, my senses, consensus view coming out of the White House, the National Security Council staff that, you know, you, Taiwan, need to focus your efforts on asymmetric capabilities but again, that message can only go to the political leadership and at the military level, then, is that going to be implemented? And I, I wrote a piece in War on the Rocks, I think we talked about in January with the, with the colonel at the U.S. Army War College, where we took some lessons from Ukraine and what we learned about training and security cooperation with Ukraine and what can we export from that model. And kind of one of our big arguments was there has to be, of course, this bottom-up approach where trainers on the ground there bringing Taiwanese units here. And I, I'm you know, I'm hearing that that sort of stuff is going. The news is talking about we've got 200-some trainers now on the ground in Taiwan. So those are good things. But again, grassroots change isn't really going to take root unless, of course, you've got top-level real right. pressure and reform. And that's the piece where I – that you know, how do we influence the general officers and the flag officers? How do we in influence the career staff officers in the middle there who are, who are probably waiting to watch to see what their general officers are telling them to do or not telling them to do? Yeah. And how much influence we have there, I'm skeptical. And how much influence, you know, even the political leadership on either side of the Taiwanese political spectrum has yeah. challenges. What, what makes the uh, Taiwanese military bureaucracy on the upper end so uh, inflexible to change? Because you, you brought this up several times. What, what, uh, why is that so? Well, I mean, first of all, I think like any military institution anywhere, there is always this potential for insularity. Uh, we see this playing out in the United States, too. I think there are some unique factors in the U.S., uh, in our professional military education system and where we draw our officers from, in the fact that we have performed somewhat poorly in many recent wars. And so the military has been kind of hearing and socialized into this. You keep fighting the last war. And so this is where I think you get a lot of willing and internal support for things like Force Design 2030 and some fairly innovative ideas. Whereas there's no such feedback mechanism happening to the Taiwanese military, they haven't fought a war. And so there's no way of recognizing, well, our way of doing business isn't going to work. And the fear of those of us who are watching these issues somewhat closely is, of course, the first time you get that feedback may be the last time you get mm -hmm. that feedback. We may not have time for that learning to occur. So I think that's one issue. Insularity is another issue. Uh, there's a wonderful scholar of Taiwanese politics and, and sociology who I, you know, I just think the world of her work, but uh, Shelley Rigger, and she's made the point that, you know, really being a military officer in Taiwan has become a purely family affair. If your mm. father and your grandfather were in the military, you were in the military. And it really has led to this kind of division and this sense of apartness from the rest of society. You, of course, have these legacies of authoritarianism. And then on top of all of that, I mean, it is a much more hierarchical culture inside of the military than it is even the most hierarchical elements of the U.S. military. And so this sense of wanting to kind of please those above you, this sense that subordinates really are not empowered to make decisions. They're not trusted to make decisions. Uh, yeah. I recall very— Dissent is not something yeah. that's uh, encouraged. Uh, yeah, and, and there, you, you, you hear a lot dissent. of anecdotal reports about these exercises where, in essence, like, 
there's an op for, but the op for is not going to win. And mm -hmm. if there are mistakes, you don't write those mistakes down because that would actually skyline your superior, and then you're going to catch all the flat coming downhill. I've even heard this is a challenge for the military advisors that we send over because they know that if they, they see something and it doesn't look good and they write that report up to their superiors, all that's going to do is get the person they were writing the report about shit canned by the higher-ups who don't want to look bad, and that puts them in a real dilemma. Do you be honest and transparent about these problems, but then at the risk of just getting people fired, which creates all sort of right. perverse. I mean, so it's a nasty problem, and it, we, I mean, literally aren't familiar with the problem. We dealt with it with the Iraqi military, the Afghan military, the Vietnamese military. I mean, these are living, breathing, sociological, cultural entities uh, with long histories and lots of culture, and it just takes a lot of time and energy to understand what we're dealing with there. Man. Yeah, I can only imagine, um, especially if, like you said, they've got no barometer from which to uh, sort of even be encouraged to do self-evaluation or to be, you know, have an honest look, of uh, an uh, interior look at themselves. Um, so I mean, you'd mentioned earlier about uh, the Biden administration sort of taking this a little more serious. Uh, I had noted, and I hadn't even seen this committee before, but there is a um, U.S. House China committee now. Is that something uh, – is that a more of a symbolic gesture? Is this thing having a – is this an actual genuine effort within our uh, – uh, you know, civil le leadership to actually get their minds wrapped around this this issue. Oh, for sure. I mean, again, uh, I would say the Biden administration is taking the China challenge and the Taiwan, you know, front of the Ta uh, the China challenge very, very seriously and has been, been from the beginning. Uh, I also would say that this commission on the Hill is very serious. Um, again, I think most outside observers say, you know, Washington was a bit late to wake up to the challenge, but I mean, it has been up all night studying since then. But this, I think, gets to this issue of U.S. domestic politics, especially on the Hill, where I feel like our rhetoric keeps getting out in front of both our – actually, I don't know that it accurately represents what our existing policy is, as we briefly talked about. But I also think that there's this real risk of a bandwagon effect where domestic political incentives, especially on the Hill, are going to be such that – listen, American voters aren't paying a lot of attention. Totally understandable. If all you see are things like, you know, news about Chinese balloons, news about Chinese economic coercion, just all the bad things China's doing, which which are accurate, um, it's going to be relatively easy to have a very simple bumper sticker, which is China bad, must resist, must fight, all things, and that can start to take on a life of its own, where it just starts to – it's easy to score political points by just bashing China. And so one of my concerns is as that pendulum swings to, all right, we're waking up to the challenge, it could overcorrect to the point that now we start thinking, oh, there are really simple solutions to this problem. Hey, we just send a couple of trainers over, then we teach them some fire team tactics and about mission-type orders, and the Taiwanese military will reform itself. And I assure you what will happen is, like, the Taiwanese military will tell us exactly what it is that we want to hear. Right. They'll, they'll reflect it back to us, but will the problem be solved? And the same point is, you know, to the degree that it starts to look like a consensus position among people on the Hill that, you know, the United States under no circumstances could ever tolerate unification. Uh, again, that closes that long-term yeah. door. You can't kick the can down the road if there's no road to kick it down, and that puts us in a very difficult position. And I think one of the things that concerns me the most is we are starting to miscommunicate to the American people the logic of deterrence, which deterrence, you know, for deterrence to take effect, we've got to be able to show China and Taiwan we are ready, willing, and able to fight. But that somehow is getting morphed and I think some senior American officers are responsible for that into a we have to be ready to fight tonight. War is imminent. And I guess I get that's how you motivate this stodgy bureaucracy to take the problem seriously. But in doing so, you're sending signals that are feeding back into the political discourse. So, well, the military is saying war is imminent. Yeah. And, you know, I, well, then you start to believe it yourself, too. Yes. right? You say it enough times. <laughs> and and that's, so, so I think I, I've been watching is the Davidson window, you know, which had a certain strategic logic, but it also had a certain bureaucratic logic of Indopaycom needs more resources. So you get more resources by showing the threat is real um, and taking what is really, I think, an internal timeline that the Chinese had. Like she wants to have military options ready by 2027. But if she is like any other political leader, political leaders want options. They don't want constraints. They don't want to have their hands tied. They want to be able to make the decision to tie their own hands, but they don't want them tied by the military. And so we're taking this timeline. We're feeding it back into the system saying, well, he said he wanted to have his military ready. We need to be ready. He's going to invade by 2027. And now we're even saying, well, 2026 and 2025. Right. And again, that then plays into this narrative that Beijing might be like, ah, time is on our side. But I mean, and so we. Well, we're definitely seeing it even on our uh, – through our limited, you know, toilet paper roll 
um, that this idea that, well, you know, forest design is, is a real thing and it's actually a pretty damn good idea. And so now we have to accept China's going to accelerate its timeline to try to get ahead of our yeah. acquisition and, uh, you know, uh, allocation timeline. So it's like, oh, shit, they attacked yesterday. We just didn't even realize it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what do we by the time we finish this thing? The war is over. That's right. You should Did edit, we win? Yeah, edit this podcast <laughs> quickly. So it's still fresh and relevant. Um, yeah, no, no. I again, I think it's a serious problem. I think the Biden administration is taking it seriously. I think they always taking it seriously. Uh, it's just. In some level, especially among the senior uniform leadership, it would be nice to see a modicum of restraint, understanding the message to the bureaucracy, like we've got to get them startled and moving because we do need to take deterrence seriously. We do need to take defense seriously. But let's get our house in order in a way that doesn't inflame the overarching political, bilateral, trilateral, multilateral relationship um, and in a way that doesn't look like for both the American people and for the leadership in China, there is just no option other than war. And so this war is imminent mindset is just – I think yeah. deeply unhelpful. Well, it's also hard to quantify deterrence, right? Because it's like, well, th there's still peace. Like, so, so do we win? Yeah. <laughs> well, and it doesn't help that China is playing its own very active role in making this very hard for everybody to navigate because they are just actively and eagerly engaged in the gray zone, seeing how close can they come up to these red lines yeah. and how can they kind of change these facts on the ground. And so, yeah, they're giving – for those – who certainly would want an excuse to show that China is bent on war. I mean, they're giving plenty of evidence. Uh, to, to, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I was reading uh, something that was, I guess, I don't know if this is count as gray zone operations, but... Um, well, and what is the gray zone? Yeah, exactly. um, take my grad seminar, we can have that debate for three straight hours, <laughs> as my students sleep and tell you. <laughs> like, best nap all... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. But, um, so yeah, I guess China's really upset that we're now going to expand the technology that we're going to either share or buy or give to the Taiwanese. And it's it, it, th those now it seems like we're really just sort of anything that we oh. do at this point now is creating a kerfuffle. For, for sure. For sure. I mean, China will find a reason to take umbrage at whatever China sees as politically convenient or expedient to take umbrage at. Um, certainly, I think it is useful for us to recognize no matter what we do that is meaningfully going to help Taiwanese defenses or, or Taiwan and expanding and maintaining its political and economic uh, s freedom of maneuver that China's going to say something about. Um, flip side is I think there's always should be this cost-benefit calculus of just because you could do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah, and sometimes right. poking them in the eye rhetorically in a way that they feel like they have no choice but to respond meaningfully to is not helpful. This comes back to let's build up our deterrence before we start really uh, – Poking yeah. the other side in the eye, because at this point, I think we're claiming capabilities we don't don't actually have. So, again, some of that calculation, that nuance, that sophistication, and I get that existing U.S. policy towards Taiwan and China is very complicated. It's very hard to understand, but I think we all need to, to really spend some time boning up on it. Again, not reverting back to these bumper sticker solutions. Yeah, or, or, or trying to imagine that uh, something that's happening – uh, you know, halfway around the world is completely 100% analogous to what is going on uh, in a completely different region, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. You got anything else? I I know we wanted to talk a little bit about Ukraine uh, and some of – because you had mentioned you had that uh, War on the Rocks article, uh, some of the things that you can actually overlay. I mean, is there anything else that we're seeing um, – it's sort of easy to work the Russia issue through this proxy we have right now. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we, we still do have to deal with Russia. So we have a mm -hmm. little bit in our – we have some tools in our kit for dealing with another big dog. Um, I don't know. It, well, actually, I, I do think there's an interesting – Is Africa a thing um, I, well, that I mean, there, plays? Again, given the nature of the competition, it's all a thing. Yeah. I do think there's an interesting thing to talk about vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine that – I don't want to beat the is Taiwan Ukraine is Ukraine Taiwan. I I wish that horse had never come to life, but I think it's been beaten to death enough. Hopefully, <laughs> although every couple of weeks there's another op-ed, so maybe it needs another bat. But I do think there's an interesting <laughs> dynamic at play that is sometimes underappreciated among American audiences and American policymakers, uh, which is there was this interesting trend in public opinion in Taiwan that in the wake of the invasion, um, where I think here in the United States we largely thought, hey, our our way of moving forward is actually pretty effective, which is, you know, we're going to we're going to rally the 
European Western world to levy these really powerful sanctions against Russia, and we're going to supply, you know, incrementally supply Ukraine with the capability uh, to resist the Russian invasion and, and look, actually, I, I think the argument is, you know, for, for, for a fraction of the defense budget, in essence, we are bleeding Russia white. And we see that as being not only highly effective and in the American interest, but actually it should reassure Taiwan and our allies in the Indo-Pacific that, listen, we're keeping our powder dry. Ukraine is doing the heavy lift and taking care of Russia, and therefore we're going to be able to have the maneuver space to, to reinforce you. What was interesting, though, is Taiwanese confidence in American credibility actually dropped. Really? And I think the reason for this is Americans don't sufficiently appreciate that entrapment fears are real. When we hear the word entrapment, we're like, oh crap, Taiwan's gonna drag us into a war. Taiwan's not, I mean, Taiwan's not gonna go pick a fight. They're gonna be the ones that will be ground zero. That risk is, is not, uh, not a high one. I think when I say entrapment risks are real, I think they're real in terms of the perception of the Taiwanese people because they will be ground zero. And so every time you hear some narrative coming out of Washington saying, listen, like we are, we are degrading the Russian military capability for pennies on the dollar as Ukraine is bearing the burden, I think all the Taiwanese people here is, oh, Ukraine's bearing the bleeding the, yeah, Ukraine is bleeding the Russians white, uh, replace Ukraine with Taiwan. America, maybe that's your plan is on the cheap, you can drain down Russia, mm -hmm. provoke a fight with China, and then we drain down China. And actually one of the two finalists for the KMT presidential nod to be their candidate, he really took a very opposite approach of what we're I think, gonna see out of Ho, which is to say, listen, we need to disarm ourselves. We should not be this arsenal. Uh, ammunition dump, I think, was the term he used for the United States. And actually, by increasing our defenses, we're provoking the very threat that we are trying to deter. So what we need to do is show the Chinese people we have no ill will and no ill intent. We should basically disarm, and then, you know, things will be fine. And so I don't think that is the mainstream view by any stretch. I think the vast majority of Taiwanese people recognize they but need to strengthen their defenses. But he did pull some support for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people actually, weren't like, you yeah. are batshit crazy. And so I do. Uh, we just have to be careful. There are, I mean, we have to make a decision yeah. in Ukraine. We have to do things, but we have to really think through how this feeds back into other fronts of this you know, very complex crisis in ways that we may not be able to readily predict, and they don't fit in a nice, clean narrative. Yeah. So that, by the way, was not an argument for abandoning Ukraine. It was just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying, there are sometimes knockdown effects, and we have to appreciate what those knockdown effects are and maybe modify our narrative by not being quite so gleeful that the Ukrainian people are doing the suffering while we reinforce them with gear because the Taiwanese people can very easily envision themselves being in that position. Right, right. Man, so you are out here. Well, you're out here for a conference, right? Not just for for school, but you actually were, you were a, you were keen, uh, not keynote, but you were speaking at a conference. Yes, I gave a distinguished address to. to <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was I'm out here in D.C. I'm part of a totally different project, which is looking at the future of artificial intelligence and how different societies are approaching artificial intelligence in terms of their ethics, their norms, and their infrastructures. No, oh, fascinating. Uh, which clearly has a very, very clear. Uh, security tie and so was there for this and then like i said getting ready to head over to the indo-pacific and, and do some some visits and some conversations in, in tokyo and taipei that's cool i guess i would just close out since you are talking tokyo i mean um another one of our allies that's showing some um i guess some genuine concern uh is the japanese ground self-defense force um i saw i think it was an article here in uh was it War on the Rocks? Yeah, talking about uh, Japanese making a case for land power in the first island chain. Um, there was something else, uh, yeah, Patriot missile deployment into some of the uh, Miyako, uh, Miyako Islands. So, I mean, that's a big deal. I know, I think one of our previous conversations about this was, is that, you know, uh, does China have, or I mean, does Japan have skin in the game, or do they want to also be poking uh, the bear, as it were, uh, with this too, and it seems like I think they're taking some of the CCP's expansionist goals pretty serious, huh? I mean, I, it seems very safe to say that Japan is very alarmed by what it's seeing in the cross-strait relationship, and given Japan's proximity to Taiwan, uh, and particular some you know Japan's farther away islands from say Tokyo, and their proximity to Taiwan, that you know it is very easy to see how they could see that as being a threat. Again, this speaks to the complexity of this long-term challenge, which is to say our official policy is that, you know, we want to see this issue resolved peacefully between the Taiwanese and the Chinese people. Uh, but that has to necessarily mean there is a potential light at the end of the tunnel for Beijing from their perspective, which means unification may actually be a possibility. 
Uh, obviously, though, that would, I think, be very disturbing to Japan. So right. first and foremost, I mean, I think the, the Taiwan falling under Beijing's orbit would be destabilizing. I would agree we are seeing Japan take leaps and bounds forward in terms of doing something serious and credible about the challenge. That said, I think we got to be careful. It's easy to see the narrative that we want to see, which yes. is that all of our allies are doing exactly what we want them to do. One of the things I'm going to be in Tokyo trying to figure out is, you know, especially not just Tokyo, but also South Korea and Australia, like where are they really in this, uh, in, in this kind of coalition that we are trying to lash up? I would say Japan is the most forward-leaning in terms of the threat that they would perceive and therefore their willingness to, to help out. That said, number one, Sometimes you'll read in the popular media that Japan has doubled its defense budget. That is actually just, it's not true. I have a, a friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Adam Liff at Indiana University, who is an expert on Japanese foreign policy and military affairs. He just published this great little blog for Brookings, basically breaking down, yes, Japan has committed itself to a significant, I think it's like a 56% increase in their defense budget, but it is not by any stretch doubling. The other thing to remember is, although Japan has new white papers out in terms of their defense posture, they're spending more, as we all know, it's a long time coming between when you go from new doctrine, new concepts, and yeah. more money to actual military capability. And again, this speaks to all the reasons. It just makes so much sense to, at least for the time being, do what we can do to throttle back on the rhetoric, give our military forces and our allies military forces to really make good on some of these investments. Um, you know, at some point, at, at, yeah, at, at some point in the future, um, push may have to come to shove, but there is, I think, nothing in our interest or our allies' interest to try to bring that about sooner than right. later. Right, right. Yeah, we don't need to accelerate this timeline any yeah. more than it already is. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> 2030 is already close enough. Yeah. Yeah. We're out of control. <laughs> Hit the gas. <laughs> oh, man, this has been great, man. I, I love our straight talks. Um, Will, you got anything? Yeah, I'm good to go. All right, sweet. Yeah, man, this guy's on his way to a Padre game. He's going to see, he's going to see my boys here in the D.C., that uh, I am, I would be more jealous if you were actually going to see the Padres in San Diego. But uh, oh, yeah, true that. Either way, it beats me who's going to go and get on a airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, enjoy traffic. Welcome back to DC. That's why um, I rented a Tesla. <laughs> Possibly I go wrong. Well, uh, yeah, like we were talking about, there's always there's going to be plenty of contact, man. So, and then you're back uh, doing in-person classes, right, at George Mason? Yeah, I'm back to doing in-person. I won't be in the fall, thankfully. My faculty and my administration has been kind to me, so I'll be teaching online in the fall, but I come okay. back pretty regularly. And like I said, would love to, to you know, talk a bit about whatever it is that I'm going to find out when I'm in Tokyo yeah. and Taipei and, mm -hmm. and unpack that because these are useful conversations for me to get outside of my own head and, cool. and really work through these complex problems. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking the time, battling through traffic, coming in, and to do an in-person interview. Yeah, this is th awesome. Thanks for uh, keeping it straight with us. <laughs> <laughs> well played, man. Well played. Please edit that on out. That, you know, that's staying. That is, that's gold. All right. And on that note, uh, thank you, listeners, and uh, we'll be in touch, I guess. Peace. Bye. Talk soon. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.